We're rolling. Let me ask you guys a question to start. Have you guys ever given instructions to somebody and then left them alone to do what you asked, but you're not really sure exactly how they'll do? Maybe you told them to print something. Maybe it's a, a kid. You wonder if they truly understood or if they know how or what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for those with young children, you know, Mark with Charlotte, imagine one day handing her car keys, you know, to drive your car. <laughs> Crazy to think about now. You'll wonder how she'll do. You'll pray for her a lot, I'm sure. And if she runs into trouble, you'll want her to talk to you. And you'll want to help her and teach her along the way. And I think this is a lot of how Paul felt in these five letters we're going to look at today. Paul went to these different places, shared the gospel, saw churches started, left them alone for one reason or another. And then when trouble came, he couldn't hop on a flight or give him a phone call. He wrote letters. And these letters have proved not only to be instructive for these churches at these times, but to be inspired by the Holy Spirit for the church throughout the ages. And before we get started in these five letters, we'll do a, a little review, kind of looking at all of Paul's letters. We'll finish them off today. But let me pray for us real quick before we get started. Father, we thank you for time together. We thank you for your word. Um, we praise you for our church. Lord, we pray that through these letters in your word, our church would be strengthened and grow. Lord, that we'd be strengthened um, and reminded of the gospel this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay. Before we get in, how many missionary journeys did Paul go on? Do you guys know? Three. Three missionary journeys? One. Three. Okay. Do you know, on his first missionary journey, which letter he wrote? Colossians? No. Galatians. Galatians. This is uh, probable. I think there's some... I think Mark last week said 1 Thessalonians. It might have been the first letter. They're close. I'm going to say Galatians this week. Second missionary journey. Do you guys know what Paul probably wrote? First and second Thessalonians? Yeah. They were close to each other, right? First, that, second, best. Yeah, I think so. Third missionary journey? How many do you think you wrote? Uh, three. Three? Yeah. No, not yet. So he's, he's on this missionary journey, right? He's like in Ephesus, Macedonia, Corinth. Um, so he's not yet written back to those churches. And but, some of them he was writing from prison, which would not be his third missionary journey. They'd be after that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll put a four over here. I think he wrote... Ephesians? First and second Corinthians. And Romans, I think he wrote from Corinth. I'm not wrong. Then Paul's imprisoned in Rome, and he writes four letters. Yeah. Those are the ones we'll look at today. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and, uh, yeah, Philemon. Nice. You see the pattern? Yeah. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. 
it's kind of a helpful, helpful way, to a way to think about it. Um, the other three letters that Paul wrote, do you guys know what they are? Yeah. So, after Paul was released from prison here, he wrote, it doesn't follow the same pattern. Two letters after prison, First Tim and Titus. And then he was in prison again. And then his last imprisonment before he died, Second yeah. Timothy. But I think this is really helpful to think about. Yeah. First, second, third, fourth. Um, and when we think about what we're going to look at today, these are spaced out a little bit, right? Because we're talking about Galatians and those four books. The amount of time between them People estimate, I mean, people have all kinds of guesses for Galatians, but in the 5th century, between 40 and 50 AD, is what people would say. And then these are written most likely around 60 AD. So maybe 10 years, 10 years between them. Hmm. If you look on your handout, there's a map there with some blanks on it. I thought it'd be fun to try to think about um, these four places, there's four places, right? Because even though we're talking about five letters, one of them is not a place, it's a person. But the four places, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, do you guys know where on the map they are? Galatians is Macedonia, like Uh, no. Turkey? I think they're all kind of in Turkey. Yeah, modern-day Turkey, yeah. So under Smyrna, that's Ephesus, right? Because I visited Smyrna and then drove to Ephesus, I think. Is that right? Yeah. The one that's just below Smyrna? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right in the middle of the picture. Yeah. So if, yeah, you've got four blanks. Um, and this one's kind of shaped funny, right? Uh, this one right here is Ephesus. Right below Smyrna, the one at the top here, um, it's, it's in Macedonia. It's the first place Paul visits in Macedonia. Philippi. Philippi. This is, this is the map. Um, this one down here, well, there's an, a line pointing. To just below Sardis? To just below Sardis. You see there's like a river there that it's on. It's actually a small town. Colossae? Colossae. Colossae. I don't know how to say that one. Me neither. <laughs> Colossae. And then on the right side, Galatia is more of, it's a region. It's like an area. Not a, it's not a city. He says to the churches in Galatia, not the church in Galatia, yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. So Ephesus, Philippi, they're sort of prominent Roman coastal towns. They're on the coast. Colossae is tucked away. It's near a river. It's actually a small town. Uh, I heard or I read not long after this letter was written to Colossae, maybe like the, this is the first century. Uh, but I think within the first century, Rome built a new road about 15 miles away from Colossae. And so Colossae just kind of became a ghost town, shriveled up and didn't exist much longer after that. 15 miles was a lot further back then, you know. Um, great. 
we'll jump in. So what we're going to do, we have a lot to cover. We'll do like a quick summary. So if you flip the page and look, we'll start in Galatians. We'll do a quick summary. I'll try to give us, um, for each of these, something to know and something to do after we go through the summary, just to kind of have another handle on it. But it'll be quick. So Galatians, who, let me, let me ask this, who's read Galatians this week or recently? Nice. What is, what's one word that you might use to summarize the book of Galatians? Salty. No, I don't know this week. <laughs> Salty. Justification. That's a good one. Justification. Any other uh, ideas? Maybe rebuke. Rebuke. Yeah. I'll just write a couple of these on the board as we go. Why do you say salty, Anna? Because he's like rebuking them with his some tone. fire, his tone. Yeah. Like you foolish Galatians. Salty. Great. Uh, my word was actually justification, also. Um, but you'll notice the tone's quite a bit different, right? Especially compared to 1 Thessalonians last week, <laughs> where he's like, You guys are amazing. You've done everything right. Keep doing it. Yeah. Now it's to the Galatians. He's like, Who's bewitched you? You foolish Galatians. Very different. That doesn't mean that Paul, you know, start, he wrote Galatians first, most likely. That doesn't mean that he started off, you know, really hardcore and softened up over time. But it's just a different situation, different churches, about a decade apart, Galatia and Thessalonians. Like uh, Mark mentioned earlier, Paul in Galatia, was not writing to an individual or even one church. He was writing to uh, many local churches. He says, to the churches of Galatia in verse 2. All those in the province of Galatia. If you go to Acts, you'll learn that he planted churches in Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Those are all places in Galatia, five cities. Um, The particular thing to know about the people he's writing to is that false teachers have come into their towns. You can hear more about that specifically in Acts 15, but these people were commonly called Judaizers, and they taught that Gentiles who wanted to become Christians had to still follow parts of the law of the Old Testament, and especially circumcision. That's why Paul writes to convince the Galatian churches that they're in great danger of abandoning Christ, by adding to the gospel. This lets the melodic line. Nothing can be added to the gospel of Jesus Christ. One thing you may have noticed also in reading Galatians is that he makes a lot of the same points as he does in the book of Romans. A lot of similarities between those two books. Um, and I think that just goes to show that the gospel is the same, you know, yesterday, today, and forever. Like I said, about 10 years or more apart, those books are written, I think. Uh, Maybe not quite so much for those. Maybe five or six years. But, um, yeah, it should be an encouragement to us that there's so many similarities. Mm. 
I've split the, the book into three parts. You'll see there's the gospel messenger, the gospel message, and the gospel's freedom. I think an even more catchy or memorable way to think about it is history, theology, ethics. History, theology, and ethics are sort of the three main parts of Galatians. Paul starts off in his introduction um, after he gets past the initial greeting. Uh, yeah, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Like we said, that's a huge contrast to other letters. Um, he uses strong words because it's so serious. And he's also not worried about what others think. In verse 10, you get a, a great verse about the fear of man and how Paul wasn't afraid of what others thought of him. Next is Paul's testimony, the second half of chapter 1. We get, um, he explains that we can trust the gospel that he preaches because he received it from Jesus Christ himself. Paul shares how he himself used to persecute the church, then he was converted, and now he serves the church. The timing here is also pretty interesting, just seeing like how many years he spent in different places. I think in Acts it's spread over a few pages, so you kind of miss it, but here it's... I spent three years here and um, 15 days there. And, um, he's giving all this history because he wants to prove that this message is trustworthy and that it is accepted by the other apostles. Um, as we get into chapter 2, we get the famous story where Paul opposes Peter. Mm. Peter had been hanging out with the Gentile Christians and then some... Judaizers show up and Peter separates himself and Paul saw this as a contradiction to the gospel. Do you guys know what the contradiction was that Paul saw? Why would that be a contradiction? So disunity, that's, okay, yeah. Food, problem was Yeah, so the Judaizers say you can, you must follow these Jewish food laws. Yeah, that's right. And so Peter, when they're not there, seems like okay, but when he, they show up, he fears man and separates himself. And so it's kind of a, it's a faulty practice rather than faulty teaching there. He kind of, he doesn't teach a different gospel like he doesn't teach what the Judaizers say. He just acts according what, to what the Judaizers say. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Later in Galatians in 3.28, Paul's going to say that there's no Jew or Gentile because they're one in Christ. Paul's going to teach on that. And that's what Peter is living in contradiction to the gospel. Hmm. After that, Paul goes on from verse 15 and following, to give a little preview of the gospel. He reminds the readers that they're not justified by their works of the law, but through faith in Christ. And that's, that's the heart of the gospel, is substitutionary atonement, faith alone in Christ Jesus. He ends this section with um, like a personal history. Oh, no, sorry. He ends this section of personal history with words that are true for all of us who have turned and trusted in Jesus, uh, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. That's true of all of us who have become Christians. Next, he gets into theology, the gospel message. A lot of things here. Another 
intense address to the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Another translation said, who has cast a spell on you? Um, so he, he starts, he turns back to the law of Moses in the Old Testament to show um, how people were declared righteous even then, that it wasn't through works of the law. Circumcision wasn't even there, there yet. But Abraham was justified by his faith because he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Does anybody know where you could find that in the Bible in Genesis? That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 12 is a good guess, not 12. Close, 15, 6. Genesis 15, 6. Yeah. Yeah, his point's that God's purpose was always to have like a large multi-ethnic family of people who relate to him based on faith, not based on their keeping of the law and of the Torah. Next is the law and promise. You know, if that's true, it raises important questions about the role of the law in God's plan. You know, why did God give the law in the first place? Paul says that the law did three things in relation to the promise of the coming Christ. It convicted, which is 319, convicted them of sin. It locked them up, sort of protected them and supervised them, verses 22 and 24, uh, until the promised Messiah came. Next is law and sonship. Because of the Messiah, through faith, we can be adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. A lot of similarities there between that and I think Romans 8. Then the law and freedom. I'm sure you had no questions about Hagar and Sarah here. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul contrasts the law, which is represented by Hagar, and freedom of faith that's um, illustrated by Sarah. And that brings us to the last section of Galatians, ethics, the gospel's freedom, all about how we are to live in the Spirit. Paul says we're called to freedom because Christ has set us free from the yoke of slavery. But this freedom is not a license to sin. Uh, it's a license to serve one another. And so we're to keep in step with the Spirit, producing gospel fruit. Josue is actually teaching in the other class this morning about some of the fruit of the Spirit that you get here in 5.22 and following. <clears throat> Then he talks about the responsibility of freedom, the responsibilities of things like bearing each other's burdens and sorrows, sharing and supporting teachers, um, doing good to others, especially those who are of the household of faith. And then, yeah, that, that, that's the letter of Galatians. And the point of all of it, Paul's writing because nothing can be added to the gospel of Jesus. Nothing should be added. A lot of things we missed in there. Let me give us two things to know, two things to do. So one thing to know is that the gospel comes from God. Paul says that even if an, him, an apostle, came and preached a different gospel, not to believe it. And so for us, um, we need to know that God's message doesn't change. Paul takes a lot of pain to show that this message is trustworthy because of who he received it from, Jesus Christ who it was approved by, the apostles, and how it hasn't changed since even before Paul was an apostle. And for that, it, uh, for us, that means um, the preaching of the gospel and our understanding of the gospel must match up to the Bible. Mm. The Bible is our message. 
Second thing to know, so the gospel comes from God. Number two, justification is by faith alone and Christ alone. This was central to the Protestant Reformation. But hundreds of years before the Reformation, Paul makes the same point to the Galatians. Christ alone has rescued us and saved us, not because of any merit in ourselves. Martin Luther, in 1531, gave lectures on the book of Galatians. It was actually his second or third time doing this, but they wrote it down in a commentary. But listen to what he says. Luther says, We have taken it upon ourselves in the Lord's name to lecture on this, to lecture on this epistle of Paul to the Galatians once more. This is not because we want to teach something new or unknown, for by the grace of God, Paul is now very well known to you. But it is because, as often warn you, as I often warn you, there is a clear and present danger that the devil may take away from us the pure doctrine of faith and may substitute for it the doctrines of works and of human traditions. Hmm. So he's saying these dangers are clear and present today, just as they were thousands of years ago. And about 500 years have passed since the Reformation, and they're still true in our, our age as well. So two things to know. Two things to do. One, fight for the truth of the gospel. Fight for the truth of the gospel. Don't be persuaded by false teachers. Stand up for the truth. Um, for those who want to be elders one day, this is part of the qualifications for being an elder in Titus. Um, Paul tells Titus to rebuke those who contradict God's trustworthy word. Don't worry about what others think. That's what got Peter's in tr- Peter in trouble. Also, in fighting for the truth of the gospel, as a church, Paul puts the responsibility to judge false teachers, not, ulti- not ultimately on the leaders, but on the church members. Paul admonishes the members of the church for putting up with these false teachers in, in 1 verse 8. Um, or that section 6 through 10 of chapter 1. He admonishes the members of the church. He assumes that the members of these churches know the gospel, or that they should, and that they have the ability and responsibility to put out false teachers from among them, um, or correct those teachers. That's the same for us in our church. We're a congregational church. So ultimately, the, um, the emergency break of false teaching is our responsibility. It's not Mark's. It's not the other pastor's. It's ours. So, fight for the truth of the gospel. Second thing to do, remind each other of our freedom in Christ. Remind each other of our freedom in Christ. I wonder if you ever have a difficult time accepting God's grace when you sin, and you kind of have a feeling that you think you need to make it up to God, somehow endure punishment for that sin. That's a legalistic way of thinking that we can fall into. And to counter thinking like that, we need each other's help. We can confess sin, and when we do, especially when we hear our friends confess sin to us, we need to remind each other of the gospel, that that sin is sin, but that Christ died for it. Remind each other of Christ's perfect sacrifice for our sins, past, present, and future, that it's really finished. Um, great. Any, any questions about Galatians? That's a very high, uh, quick look at the book. Any questions about, maybe about the structure particularly? Or... Great. Yeah. Um, 
in chapter 2, verse 6, when he says, What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. What does that mean? Yeah, so what's he talking about here? These. I think it's his testimony or. So from those who seem to be influential, he's talking about these false brothers who secretly brought in. He's talking about the false teachers. Or is he talking about the apostles in Jerusalem? I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along. I went up. <clears throat> oh, I think he's talking about um, what uh, the people in the church that... Um, holding ranks or something mm. and that he doesn't really that god shows no partiality between the people that might be seen as you know at a higher rank and then you know the rest of the church like god doesn't love them more than the others because mm. yeah. he says that he's well because that's that's exactly right but he says in in verse six i say who seemed influential yeah. added nothing to me on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who had working with Peter and me, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, received the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. So I think it's the true apostles in Jerusalem. Mm. But he's saying, like, even though they are apostles, like, they're just men like me. I wonder if he's talking about, like, the grace. Like, they don't have more grace. Yeah. from God, just because they're apostles. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, the section, it's really about like his, I mean, it's his, um, his testimony, but it's about like why the Galatians should trust the gospel he preaches and that he's not worried about, you know, titles or things like that, but it's the true gospel. Mm-hmm. If you read it, I think especially in these first few chapters, the word gospel is repeated and repeated and repeated. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Maybe you noticed that. I think that um, justification is a great one-word summary. If you think about these five books, I'll try to give you just one word to think about each one of them. But we'll move on to Ephesians. What is uh, one word you might think of for the book of Ephesians to summarize it? Unity. Unity. Nice. In fact. Huh? Union with Christ. Hidden in Christ? Union with Christ. Union with Christ. Yeah. Unity, union. Those are great. I think the one, the word I thought of, you guys keep doing this, uh, was unity also. That doesn't mean it's the right answer, it's just the one that I say. Um, if you want the background for the book of Ephesians, you could go to Acts 19. Paul spent about two years there doing ministry in Ephesus. And here's Paul's main argument of the book. You have received supernatural grace. Therefore, live in supernatural unity to the glory of God. The book breaks up well into two parts, doctrine and duty. And at the beginning of chapter 4, 
Those two parts hinge on the word therefore. Therefore. 4 verse 1. So the first half you could say is doctrine, the gospel story. The second half you could say is duty or our story. So Paul begins with what's essentially a poem praising God for what he's done in Christ. It, um, it zooms out to this really wide lens, thinking about the cosmos, the universe. He begins before time in the heavens, explaining that before the foundation of the world, God the Father predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. And after he details Paul or God's cosmic plan, he prays that the Ephesians would have spiritual eyes to see what God's done for them. So that's the cosmic aspect. Then he zooms in a little bit. This lens narrows its focus to the church. Um, in Galatians, Paul explained that in Christ there's no Jew or, or Greek. And then here in Ephesians, Paul elaborates to show how Christ, how, how Christ's work has bridged the gap, not only between us and God, but it's broken down a dividing wall of hostility between us and our fellow man making dead people come to life. Um, all have been brought near by the blood of the Lamb. Verse 2.13 Now both Jew and Greek are a new, unified humanity. They're stones in this new temple of the church that God is building. Finally, Paul zooms in one more time in this first half of the letter to himself to look at his own role in proclaiming, bringing to light the mystery of the gospel and the mystery uh, is that the Gentiles are included in God's plan. Uh, and it's a mystery of how God would make atonement for the sins of humanity. And he seems to get so worked up in this third chapter that he goes into yet another prayer. This time he prays that the Ephesians would be strengthened by God's grace, by God's spirit to grasp the love of Christ. Um, verse 20 is a verse I'm sure you've heard before. To him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, ask or imagine. Um, the second half, Paul gets into duty. He shifts gears from kind of those three spheres um, into unity, maturity, and warfare. And this is actually how I, I first learned the book. Identity would be those first three chapters, and then unity, maturity, warfare. Identity, unity, maturity, warfare. So unity, he first tells them that they need to walk in unity. Not uniformity, doesn't mean they all need to do the same things, serve the church in the same way. But unity in that they all have the same God, the same faith, same baptism. They're one body. And as gifts to the body, God gives the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's verses 11 and 12, chapter 4. Next, he moves on to maturity. This is a big section. Paul challenges all Christians to grow up. He tells them to live a new life by taking off the clothes of their old self and putting on these new clothes of Christ. A lot of great details in there about how we can live today. And finally, Paul moves on to warfare. His final challenge uh, to the Ephesians is to stand firm against the spiritual enemy that would seek to break up their unity. 
And so to fight that, to combat it, Paul lists the armor of God um, from chapter 6, verse 10 and on. Um, this, armor, this armor actually comes from ideas in the book of Isaiah about the coming Messiah. And that's because as followers of Jesus, they need to make the Messiah's attributes their own. They're sort of putting on Christ. And in doing so, they're putting on his armor. That's the book of Ephesians. The gospel's story of God's supernatural grace that should shape and transform our story with supernatural unity. Great. That one is faster than Galatians. That's good news. Two things to know. One, know who you were. A lot in Ephesians about who we were before Christ. We were dead, 2 verse 1, children of wrath, verse 3, separated from Christ, alienated from God's people, strangers to his promises, without hope, verse 12. We were far off, 2 verse 17. We were in darkness, 5 verse 8. And remembering who we were before Christ helps us to realize our need for him. And it makes the good news better and better the more that we think about those things. We become humbled because God predestined us according to the purposes of his will. So know who you were. The other thing to know is that the church is God's, the church is key to God's plan to reach the nations. The church is key to God's plan to reach the nations. He spends a lot about the unity of the church in the first couple chapters, but then look at chapter 4, verse 8. Um, is this where I wanted to go? It's not verse 8. Where do I want to go? There's another place he talks about the church. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Uh, what? Chapter 3, verse 10. 3, verse 10. Yeah. Great. 3, verse 10. That's where I wanted to go. So Paul's been given this duty to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what's the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through not his own effort, not through some campus ministry, not through a Christian nation, through the, the, church, the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we need to know that the church is not a hindrance to God's plan, even though ministry in the church can feel slow at times. It can feel hard and monotonous. We might think we could do more work for God if we were on our own. Um, but no, the church is a gift. It's an irreplaceable part of what God's doing in the world. Um, you could ask the interns. They read a book this week about compelling community, how the church itself is a witness to the world of the gospel. Okay, those are two things to know. Two things to do. One, work towards unity. This book's all about unity. And there's a lot of ways that we could work toward it. Um, one is through deacons. The, the purpose of deacons is to promote unity in the church. But another way I want to encourage us towards uh, is that the way we think and speak about other Christians uh, can really promote or um, promote unity or hurt the church, divide the church. So when someone does something to frustrate you, 
which is bound to happen in our church or any church or church of sinful people. Um, what do you assume about them when they frustrate you or when they do something? Do you assume that they have good intentions or bad intentions? Do you talk to them about it or do you talk to other people about it? A supernatural community, the church, it requires supernatural unity. And we need the Spirit's help in order to do that. We need to be um, deliberate promoters of unity in the church. So work towards unity. To pray always for all the saints. So you might think that praying for other Christians is like a good extracurricular activity for Christians. Like it's helpful. But Ephesians 6.18, Paul commands the church to keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. It's a command to pray for all the saints. So how do we do it? I think the best way, because we're forgetful, is to make a list of some kind. You know, you can have a routine, pray for your small group on Sundays, pray for your pastors on Mondays or something like that. Those are helpful. Um, You can pray through the membership directory, even one person a day. I actually think um, ECCD puts this verse on the front of their membership directory because it's really the reason why they print it. You know, for that and for keeping up with birthdays. That's why we have directories, is to pray for one another. Okay? Any questions about Ephesians? Anything I said? Any questions about... Is it likely that Paul's saying this because there was disunity amongst Jews and Gentiles and he's trying to say, like, they should be together, they should be one? I I think that would make sense. He talks about those two ladies, doesn't he? Even, like, not just, like, generally, like, the church should be united, but he talks about Judea and Syntyche. I think that's in Philippians. Oh. Although I've read all these this week and they're kind of blurring together in my mind a little bit. Yeah, Yudia and Syntyche are Philippians 4, verse uh, 2. Yeah, 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 that's right. Which, okay. yeah. Segway. <laughs> Segway. Speaking of Philippians. Um, okay, so we have justification, unity. Unity, the, the theme bleeds in, you know, all of these are a little bit true of all the other letters. You know, the gospel is true. The way people should live is true, like in all these letters. But unity in Ephesians. Philippians, any thoughts on what a good... One word summary might be rejoice. Rejoice. Why do you say that? Lots of time, uh, first of all, uh, Paul is the example even though he's in prison. Yeah. And, uh, situation is not good, but most of time we find he is rejoicing in the Lord. Yeah. Again, I say rejoice. Yeah, there's a lot about joy. Partnership, maybe, is another one. Joy, partnership, humility of Christ, humility of Christ, gospel is spread, humility, I said gospel is spread, spread Spread of the gospel, that's three words, (laughs) gospel centered life, (laughs) gospel centered life, uh, gospel centered life. Which one did you go with? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, the problem is I wrote it on my, my last page of my notes, so I'll get to it in a second. I think it was, yeah, this is funny. It was joy. Mm. Joy, I, I think I actually leaned into contentment. Content in whatever circumstances. Um, yeah. But I think those are very similar ideas, joy and contentment. Great. The background of Philippians. Philippi was a Roman colony in Macedonia. So Paul receives the Macedonian call in Acts 16 and makes his way there. And this is the first city he goes to. A woman named Lydia was converted um, before Paul and Silas were arrested. They went to jail. I think that's when they sang songs in jail and the doors opened. Mm. Many commentators point out that Philippi uh, was known for its patriotic nationalism. Apparently a lot of like retired soldiers ended up in Philippi. Uh, and that caused a lot of friction with Paul's message about the gospel, claiming that Jesus was the true king of a new and better kingdom. That came into conflict with uh, what they believed about their own country. Mm. I think the main point that Paul's trying to say is humbly serve you could maybe say joyfully serve others as United Kingdom citizens. Uh, humble. humble. Uh, not citizens of the UK. United Kingdom citizens. The structure... Yes. Mark is the best at this. Uh, the structure of this book has two parts, I think. Advancing the gospel kingdom, living as kingdom citizens... Uh, but it all, I think, orbits around what Paul says in chapter 2 about Jesus. So I kind of added that, that little letter I. I think it's all kind of around that. Paul begins with thanksgiving and prayer. Verse 6 uh, is an encouraging verse where Paul expresses his confidence that God will complete the work that he began in the Philippians. He'll complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Then he moves on to suffering and the expanse of the gospel. Paul addresses and reflects on his own imprisonment, and he sees that it's actually serving the advancement of the gospel, that people are talking about Paul and why he's in prison, and the Christians are actually spurred on to be more bold with their faith because of Paul's example. And um, while Paul's reflecting on this, his own fate is up in the air. He doesn't know if he's going to be released, if he's going to be um, killed, um, executed. And so he writes, uh, one of the things he writes are the famous words of verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He ends this section with sort of a summary of what's to come, a summary of the commands, verse 27 through 30, that they are to live as kingdom citizens. And then living as kingdom citizens, Paul starts out with unity through humility. He urges the Philippian church towards joyful unity by humbly serving one another. He encourages them based on their shared experience with the triune God. Hmm. So chapter 2, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So that's their experience with God. And then he gives them the ultimate example of sharing in the triune God's life with humility and joy, which is the example of Christ. So those seven verses, uh, 5 through 11, 
really six verses. I think five just says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Um, yeah, that's, it's a, kind of like a poem. Maybe it's an early hymn in the church, like a song. Mm-hmm. Paul traces Jesus' journey from his preexistence with God to his incarnation, his humiliation, his death, and then his exaltation and ascension to the right hand of God. It's full of allusions to Genesis 1 through 3, Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. And Paul uses it all to show Christ's example, ultimate example of service. Hmm. Jesus didn't exploit his equality with God. That's what it means when it says he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be exploited. But he emptied himself in selfless love down, down, down to his death on the cross. And then what's the result? The result is exaltation. He's Lord. Every tongue will confess it. So, you know, the question, why did Jesus die on the cross? Most importantly and primarily, it's substitutionary atonement. That's, we even mentioned that in Galatians. But here in Philippians, Paul's highlighting Jesus' death as an example. You know, one smaller reason that Jesus died is as an example for us to live, to follow him. He's our model for earthly living. He's our king. We're his citizens. After this hymn, Paul highlights two worthy examples of imitation in addition to Christ. So he gives Christ and he says, here's two guys who are following him in their, in their lives. Two worthy examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Next, Paul talks about his own steadfastness through opposition. He gives himself as an example of steadfastness. He follows Christ's example. He gave up his impressive Jewish Jewish resume. And he says that he counts it all as nothing, as filth, as poop, basically, in comparison to knowing Jesus. 3, verse 8 and 10. He encourages the Philippians to press on in their faith because their citizenship is in heaven and one day their king will reward them. And then lastly, uh, peace through humility. He he addresses two more people. This is the example Mark brought up earlier of Udia Udia and Syntyche. Not as examples, but as ones who need to follow the example of Christ in order to find peace with one another. He gives... Paul gives encouragement to rejoice as well as encouragement to find peace that surpasses understanding by praying to God about our burdens. And then he concludes by thanking the Philippians again for their sacrificial gift. Um, And he wants them to know that the sacrifices and hardships he's faced have actually taught him the secret to contentment, the secret to joy, that he can be content in all things through Christ Jesus, his Lord. So once again, what's the point? The point is humbly serve one another as United Kingdom citizens. Maybe I should, I should change that. United Kingdom just sounds wrong. <laughs> it's good. As gospel citizens. Just made me giggle. <laughs> uh, two things to know. Two things to know. One, in Christ, you're indestructible. In Christ, you're indestructible. And this is not in the way that people tend to use chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, It's because of what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's true for all of us who believe. 
that to live means joyful, purposeful service to our master. And to die means being with our Savior face to face, free from worldly pains and trials. So Christians are indestructible. Death's sting is gone. To kill us or to let us live, it doesn't matter. Christ is glorified. And Paul is a model of what that looks like. So know you're indestructible if you're in Christ. Two, Christ is the key to humility. I read humanity, which is also true. But Christ is the key to humility. Humility, chapter 2, verse 3, means counting others more significant than yourselves. Humility, in verse 4, means looking to their interests above your own. The secret of humility is forgetting yourself and considering others. And the power to do that, and the greatest model for that, is Christ himself. He stepped down from the glory of heaven. He put on human flesh. He took the form of a servant. And that there's nothing more humble than that, than the God of the universe humbling himself in that way. The highest of the high, God himself, made himself low to serve us, to bear more shame than we can imagine. And in doing that, he's ransomed us. And in doing so, God's highly exalted him. So if we want to be humble truly, we need to forget ourselves, think about others, and think about Christ. Christ is the key. Two things to do. One, follow godly examples. You can't read this letter and miss all of the godly examples that Paul mentions. There's Timothy 2:19 through24. He's a model of humbleness. There's Epaphroditus next who risked his life for the work of Christ. There's Paul in chapter 3, who, unlike the Judaizers, presses on towards Christ. And then there's Christ himself as our ultimate example. These are our model citizens. And so for us, we should look for godly examples to follow as well in our churches. Um, Think about who's someone in your life that you respect, who you really see Christ in them. And... Spend time with them, follow them as they follow Jesus. So follow godly examples. Two, look out for others. Humility means considering others' interests above your own. So even if you're in a position of authority, like a boss or a husband or a parent, or if you're in a position of honor, like an older sibling or the oldest person in a room, um, we should be slow to use words like, I deserve this. We should be quick to think things like, who can I share this with? Or does everyone have what they need? So think of how we can look out for one another's interests above our own. Not only does that honor them when we do that, it honors the Lord because we're obeying him. And not only does it honor the Lord, it brings us joy. There's a sweetness that comes from laying down our our lives and serving others when you really are caring about their own interests or about their interests above your own. Um, questions about Philippians? That one took a little longer. <coughs> questions? It's a great book. Great verses to memorize in all of these, actually. It was the first sermon series at Covenant Church. Ah, years ago. good to know. Brian preached Philippians. Number one. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I really learned it well through that. 
And I think at the end of the series, he preached an overview of the whole book. Wow. And we read the whole book in our, in our church service. Ah. Four readers, if I recall. <clears throat> so. Brian's going to do that again in two weeks. He's going to read all of John. Just kidding. He's not going to read all of John. But he's going to preach all of John uh, in one sermon, which will be great. Okay, last. Well, not last, but last of these four uh, churches, or letters to churches. Colossians. What's one word you use to describe this book? Supremacy. Huh? Supremacy. Supremacy. Supremacy of Christ. Supremacy. Like Hebrews. I'll put that in for this. Is that Christ? There's actually a lot of similarities to Hebrews in some of the verses. Do you think Paul wrote Hebrews? Never mind. Don't answer that. (laughs) (laughs) You'll find out next week. I'm doing Hebrews and James next week. Will we find out who wrote Hebrews? Yeah. Wow, it's a big promise. Big promise from Mark. He's going to bring indisputable evidence of who wrote the book. Supremacy is a great guess. Any other ideas? Above. Not below. Alive in Christ. Alive. Alive in Christ. It kind of feels similar to Ephesians in that it's like identity and then new, like what that looks like lived out mm. in life. Yeah. Those two kind of sections. Mm. Nice. I think, <laughs> I didn't use this word, but I think, uh, what is it? Preeminent is a word that Paul uses in uh, chapter 1. But it's really about the supremacy of Jesus. And that, um, I mean, here in the melodic line, I wrote, Christ is all. So he's supreme, he's preeminent, and nothing remains untouched by his love and rule. So Christ is everything. Uh, Interesting thing about the letter to Colossians is that Paul didn't start this church. And in fact, he's never even met most of them. A man... Mentioned in the letter, Epaphras is likely the founder of the church. Um, The origins of this letter are likely that Epaphras brought encouragement and concerns about the church in Colossae to Paul, who was in prison. I think Paul maybe met Epaphras, maybe met Philemon in um, Ephesus. This is like the coastal town, and this is like, you know, if you're in the small town of Colossians and you wanted to go buy groceries or something, you'd go to the big city of Ephesus. Maybe it's not exactly true, but small town, big city. Um, What was Paul's main message? Christ is all. Uh, And then here's the breakdown. Exalted Messiah, pressure to turn away in the resurrected life. So the exalted Messiah, you have gospel growth. Paul opens by giving thanks for gospel fruits of love and peace and grace in the Colossian church. Then he prays that they would grow in wisdom and understanding and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. A prayer that's a precursor of what's coming in the letter. Then it's the exalted Christ. Verse 15 and following. A poem. Um, There's a poem right there in Colossians again. About Christ's preeminence, 15 and on. 
about the crucified and exalted Messiah. There's a lot here again in this poem about, uh, or, or from the Old Testament, from things like Genesis 1 or Exodus 40 or Psalm 2 and, and others. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, which is Old Testament language that he was the king. He's the king of all creation. And in fact, all things were created through him and for him. Paul's showing that Jesus is God. And not only is he the head of creation, he's the head of the church, which is the body. In him, God's presence dwells, and through him, all things are reconciled to himself. Next is Paul's service to Christ. Paul describes his hardships, says that they're actually causes of joy. Sounds a little bit like Philippians. He rejoices that he can share in the sufferings of Christ, meaning that the work of Christ, that it was accomplished on the cross, is being completed in his life and in our lives as we share in suffering for his sake. Uh, Next is the pressure to turn away. The pressure to turn away. So these are the concerns that Ephesus raised about the Colossians. So along with these encouraging things, Paul brings up two two main concerns. uh, Two things that are pressuring the Colossians to turn away. One is Roman polytheism. The other is Jewish legalism. Both these things were causing these young Christians to be shaken. And by the way, these two things are still pressures for us today in our world. Maybe not Roman polytheism, but a temptation to add Jesus to the list of other gods that we serve. Jesus is one of the things that we serve. Um, Or a temptation to add additional requirements to Jesus for our salvation. So those two things still threaten us today. In response to those two threats, Paul tells that Jesus triumphed over all spiritual powers, Mm -hmm. 2 verse 15. And Jesus fulfills the law, which lacked the power to save, and we're only a shadow, verse 17. So you're saying Christ um, triumphed over all those things. Then we get the resurrected life. So similar to other letters, now he gets on to how do we live? What does this look like for for us? Um, He shows that Jesus rules now, and so we we need to set our mind on things to come. We need to put off the old humanity, put on the new humanity. And the new humanity is not Greek and Jew. Some of these qualities are key to understanding the fifth letter that we'll look at soon, Philemon. Then he gets to new households, uh, 3.18 through 4.1. The new humanity calls for new household order. Uh, In Rome, the Roman um, head of the household, the man, was essentially the king of the family. He could exercise the power, I think really of life and death over his children, his wife, his slaves. But now, who do you think the king is? The wife? Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. It's important also to know that Jesus doesn't do away with these structures of authority that are there. Rather, as Jesus rules our hearts with self-giving love, we to treat others with self-giving love, other people in our households. So the the structures of authority are still there, but a a totally different way of thinking about them with Christ as our King. Then final instructions, Paul mentions that he's sending Tychicus to read the letter and another person named Onesimus, who they're to receive as a brother. 
Two things to know. One, watch out for worldly philosophies. Chapter 2 is all about the pressure that the Colossians had to turn away from Christ. In our world today, there's a lot of philosophies that are, um, they might seem plausible, but they actually lead us away from Christ. Maybe, can you guys think of any philosophies you hear today on TV or from friends or colleagues that might lead us away from the truth? Kind of a postmodern view of truth that like truth is relative and it's everybody's truth is equal and yeah. basically that there's not a truth. Yeah, that's your truth. This is my truth. Live your truth. You do you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one I thought of. Um, maybe I need to love myself. Um, you are enough. Do what makes you happy. Mm, yeah. Look out for number one. Um, it's good to recognize philosophies like these so that we can sort of put caution tape in our mind around them. Uh, Christ is all, and so we need to watch out for worldly philosophies. <coughs> Two, God gives energy for his work. That's the other thing to know. When we do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, we rely on his spirit. Uh, rather than our own efforts to make a difference. So if you listen to Paul's words in 1, verse 28 and 29, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all, all his energy. It's all, all God's energy that he powerfully works within him. So he, God, powerfully works all of his, God's energy in Paul. So if you feel like you're running on empty, if you feel like you're serving and you're sinking, uh, ask God for strength. God gives energy to do his work. Look to him for help. He gives sleep to his beloved, Psalm 127. And he also gives energy to his laborers for their tasks. So God gives energy. Two things to do. One, and these, these two that I'm about to list kind of uh, you, could, you could pull them from all of these letters. One, pray with Paul. So if you ever feel like you're not sure what to pray, just pray along with Paul. Pray what he says. You could pray, I could pray that Mark would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What a great prayer. You can just look through these pages and find great things to pray for one another. Things that... Um, If we don't know what to pray for, or if we just want something better to pray for, we can pray with Paul. And then two, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life, which sounds really intense. Um, You know, don't don't ruin it. (laughs) But when, when we're gripped by the gospel, when we're gripped by the preeminence of Christ, his supremacy, um, it's not just a part of our lives, but our whole life, then we understand that It's only things that are done for him that will last. All of our life is now a spiritual act of worship to God. So don't don't waste your life on the Dubai dream. Don't waste your life on your parents' dream for your life. Don't let the world of distractions that lay inside your phone or um, all kinds of places, don't let them take away God's plan or let them waste your life. If you gave your life to Christ, then 
give your life to Christ. Keep giving it to Him. Die to yourself. Follow Jesus. Questions about Colossians? Anything I said? We'll keep moving because we have one more small, small book. Small book of Philemon. Philemon is the smallest book in the New Testament, I think. Is that right? It's the smallest of Paul's letters. Jude? I think Jude's a hair longer. There's like words that are different. In terms of word count, they're, uh, they're, both, they're both pretty short. Yeah. Philemon is definitely the shortest of Paul's letters. What's one word you'd use to summarize it? Reconciliation is a great answer. But there's, you know, there's <laughs> different ways to think about it. You might notice that you had to skip over a few books. You know, Philemon wasn't right after Colossians. Does anybody know why that is? The letters of Paul are organized by length? Yeah. So if, if you wonder why your New, your new, your new Testament is organized the way it is, you have Gospels. Then Acts, you know, just, it's a history like the Gospels. Then you have Paul's letters organized by length. Then you have the general letters organized by length. Then you have Revelation. Mm. It is like all the Timothys and uh, Titus, Philemon. It's like kind of personal, kind of talking to one person, giving instructions. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it makes sense the personal letters might be a little shorter, but like... Uh, 1 Timothy is longer than Colossians. Is that right? Yeah, so it must be personal. Letters to churches. But generally speaking, the length is the determining factor. Yeah. <clears throat> Great. So Philemon, um, in some ways you can think of this as an appendix to the letter to Colossians. So if you remember, Tychicus was one of these guys who was going to come and read the letter, and you could imagine him having like the letter to the Colossians to read to the church. And in his back pocket, he had this private letter to a man named Philemon, who was part of the church. Philemon was a wealthy citizen from Colossae, likely became a Christian through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And later he became a leader of the church in Colossae, along with Epaphras. And like most wealthy Roman citizens, Philemon owned slaves. One of the slaves was named Onesimus who we just heard mentioned at the end of Colossians. Uh, we can kind of gather together a general picture of what happened, although we don't have specifics. But it seems like Onesimus wronged Philemon. Perhaps he stole something or cheated him, and then he ran away. And eventually Onesimus came to Paul in prison, most likely to ask for help. And in the process, Onesimus became a Christian himself. And he began to be a big help to Paul. And so this is Paul's occasion for writing. It's really small, so the structure is pretty simple. Paul's thanksgiving for grace. Paul's request for reconciliation. 
So Paul's thanksgiving for grace. In the first part of the letter, Paul opens with a prayer and thanksgiving as he usually does. But the unique part here is verse 6. He prays that the sharing of their faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that's in them. He's not talking about evangelism, like that kind of sharing of faith. He's talking about partnership, about fellowship, which is key. Uh, and it comes up later in verse 17 in this letter. Paul then commends Philemon's love, his care for other Christians. And then Paul moves on to his request. He gets to the point, Paul please for Onesimus. Uh, he requests that Philemon not just forgive Onesimus for what he's done, but that he welcome back Onesimus as a brother, as an equal and no longer a slave, a family member, a social equal. So why, why should Philemon do such a thing? Why should Philemon listen to Paul? Verse 17, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Uh, Paul puts himself forward as a substitute for the wrongs of Onesimus. He becomes a mediator who will bear the wrongs and the debts of Onesimus so that the two can be reunited. Really, he's acting as a sort of Christ mm. on behalf of Onesimus. Jesus reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And so as partners before the cross, Paul appears, appeals to Philemon to forgive Onesimus. Hostility is put to death. Hospitality flows out. That's the book of Philemon. Uh, I'll give you just one thing to know, one thing to do for the short letter. Um, one thing to know, the ground is level before the cross. So at the cross, it's not like I stand a little bit above this person who stands a little above that person. Whatever the world may say makes you better or less important than someone else, whatever you might feel in your heart that makes you more or less worthy, at the cross, we all share the same need for forgiveness. Christ doesn't bend lower to some of us because of our jobs or bend a little less to some of us because of our riches. We're all equal before God. We all fall short of his glory, and yet we all receive the same salvation in the same way, which is by his grace. So the ground is level before the cross. One thing to do, be hospitable, especially to those in God's household. We should be hospitable. Paul mentions Philemon's hospitality. Um, verse 7, I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And then he even requests more hospitality from Philemon in verse 22. He says, prepare a guest room for me. I'm hoping to come. Um, so we should think, what would it look like for us to be known for our hospitality towards others? Philemon was known for his hospitality. What would it take for us to, when they think about us, us other people, do they think about, wow, he's so generous towards others. or She's so welcoming. She always refreshes the saints. Maybe you can think of specific ways you can refresh the saints this week. Um, if we had more time, I'd give you examples of ways I've seen that in the church from different people. I know some people in the church give um, their off time when there's holiday, holidays just to serve other Christians in the church. Mm. Um, as one sweet example. 
Any questions about Philemon? God's reconciling power through the gospel of grace. Reconciliation. Yeah. You said like it's like the appendix of Colossians. So like I think you said like while Colossians is being read, Philemon is just supporting. Yeah, yeah. So it's like I think it was given to Tychicus, but Paul gave these two letters to the church in Colossians. One is written to all the Colossians. So like it'd be like two covenant hope. And there's one that's written to Matt Zilstra or something. To David, Reyes. So like, did the church ever hear it then? Because like, why do we have it now in the Bible? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the same reason we have other books that were, you know, the book of Colossians was written to the Colossians, not to Covenant Hope. But we have it today. I think it proved to be really helpful for the church uh, and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Mark, will you add anything to that? If you look at verse 1 and 2, he says that it's to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. So the primary recipient is Philemon. But then in verse 2, he says, And Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Hmm. And the application is specifically like <clears throat> primarily directed towards Philemon in terms of reconciling with Anismus. And then, secondarily, the church community. So, like, it's not a private letter to Philemon, but it's a personal letter to Philemon. Mm. And so that has to be worked out in the context of the church. So the church did here. <clears throat> I can't remember the, the pronouns here, but, <clears throat> you know, when it says, like, grace to you, if it's y'all or if it's you specifically, meaning Philemon. Um... And when he says in verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you, is it you all or is it you, Philemon, that you might have him back forever? I, I think it might be sometimes be singular. So it's directly to Philemon. And then sometimes I think it's in the context of the whole church. Yeah. And, and to, to prove the context of the whole church too, the end of Colossians chapter 4 he's talking about Tychicus that Paul sent him to you for this very purpose. There's verse 8 that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, I've sent Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that's taken place here. So Paul is saying, like, he is one of you. He's coming with you. So it's, it's kind of like, it just lines up with what Paul's writing in Philemon. Like, the church needs to welcome him. But most of all, Philemon needs to be the, the personal person. So Tychicus shows up in Colossae with a letter for the whole church, with Onesimus with him, and a letter from Philemon to say, welcome Onesimus and don't like immediately punish him for the bad he's done. Mm -hmm. is, th is that right? I think so. And like, instead of punishing him, count it to me. <laughs> it's like Paul's way of saying it. Yeah. And he's like, but you, you owe me your very, kind of like, your very life. So count it to me, but you also owe me. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting... Yeah. Pastoral move there. Yeah. And he says, like, I could I could command you to do this, but for love's sake, I'm gonna compel you to do it. Mm-hmm. Some good uh good stuff there for thinking through like 
sometimes we can, we, even if we have the right to command someone to do something, maybe it's better to try and persuade them to do it, mm -hmm. you know, and say, hey, wouldn't it be better if you did this because of these reasons? Yeah, yeah. that's great. Um, do I have something else to say about Philemon? Great. All right, four words. Justification, unity, joy, <clears throat> supremacy, reconciliation. I hope this helped you get a little more of a handle on these books. Sometimes seeing them all from a little bit higher, looking down at them can help you put them together. Um, we could have spent a, you know, a lot of time just on one of these books. But, yeah, let me pray for us to close. I'll let you go. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your grace towards us in Christ. Lord, that you, through him, have reconciled the world to yourself. Lord, you've reconciled our, our hearts. Lord, we praise you for um, the, the new life you've called us to. Lord, that it's a life that demonstrates the gospel to the world as we lay down our life to serve others, as we... Uh, even offer like Paul to pay the debts on behalf of others uh, that we might be uh, that we might have unity or that we might have restored relationships that we might have joy and Lord we praise you for all these things that you've given us in your word Lord help us to know these books better and better uh, in the weeks and years and decades of our life to come Lord willing we pray that you'd help us to know your word better mm -hmm. in Jesus name Amen Amen Thanks Carson Yeah Thanks